welcome to the Tech Trailblazers Judges on Fire podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by Teresa Cotton from Omnisperience, who's been one of our judges in the mobile category since the beginning. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning, Rose, and good morning to your listeners. Brilliant. Well, it's great that you've been able to join us. And obviously, we've known each other since the beginning. I was going to say the beginning of time, but that's not actually true. Since the beginning of the Tech Trailblazers. So could you give the audience a brief history of who you are, including some of perhaps your proudest achievements? Oh, crikey, that's, that's, that's a tall order, Rose. It's I know, hard. the brief bit's a bit <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, a telecoms industry analyst, um, and I've spent most of my career as, a, as an analyst. Um, I began uh, working for Ovum. As it was then known, it's now part of um, Informa uh, Telecoms Group. Um, but it was it was open back in the day, and then I had a, a brief interlude working for a dot com. If you remember what those are, everybody. Oh, um, but it was basically a startup. Um, so I have had experience of working for a startup myself, and then went back to be an industry analyst uh, working for a company called Chorleywood. Um, we were then acquired by Informer, so all roads lead to Informer. And then I worked for Analysis Mason. And after that, I set up my own analyst firm, largely because I wanted to, I suppose, go off piste a little bit and um, analyze things in a slightly different way uh, from the methodologies that some of the big analyst houses use. So that's been a lot of fun. Initially, um, our firm was called Telesperience, and then we rebranded a few years ago, and we became Omnisperience, which is what we are today. And we cover the uh, telecoms um, space, the tele- particularly the telecoms B2B space. So we look at lots of different vertical markets and help telecoms operators understand what those customers might need. And in terms of achievements, I don't know. I suppose I've I've published quite a few things I'm quite proud of. Um, I'm a judge for the GLOMO Awards, the Global Mobile Awards that GSMA run every year, um, which is is quite interesting and, uh, you know, sits alongside the work that I do with you, Rose. That's that's quite an interesting uh, award to do. Um, And I, I suppose my greatest achievement is I wrote a book, which I'm hoping to get. It's going to be published soon. Um, and probably my knitting, I think. I'm really into my knitting. Ah, is that lockdown knitting or is that already in situ knitting? Um, well, I, I do what I call stress knitting. So when, you know, some people go and meditate and whatever and I just knit. So I think I knitted 20 hats during lockdown. So, yeah, oh, quite wow. productive. <laughs> so you're ready for winter then? And I am indeed and so are all my friends. <laughs> Spoiler for Christmas presents, I think, that Yeah, they know what they're getting this year. <laughs> Excellent. So, obviously, you've talked a bit about your area of expertise. What, what are you seeing that's hot in the market? In the telecoms market, um, things tend to be quite cyclical. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, we're just at the stage where we're building out the next generation of networks. So that's both 5G, which is coming to market at the moment, and uh, fibre to the premises or to the home, so full fibre networks. And what this is going to deliver is massive amounts of capacity, mm. and everyone's super excited about that. But as usual in telecoms, it's reached that point of the cycle where 
we also need to think about how we monetize it. And unfortunately, and somewhat disappointingly, every time we roll out new networks, we forget about this important fact until uh, almost at the end. We have a sort of build it and they will come mindset. And it's not really good enough. We we have to think about you know our customers and what they actually need and want and how we can, um, by meeting their needs, then actually increase our own revenues. That's really, really important. So at the moment, we're doing uh, quite a lot of work um, at Omni Experience in terms of helping telecoms operators to understand um, their customers and what their customers need. Um, and that's both on the sort of pricing, packaging, billing side, and also mm-hmm. on, you know, the customer experience side, which is, you know, the kind of experience that you want to deliver, what that next generation experience should be like. Mm. Very interesting that you should mention that, actually. Um, I've just done a podcast for Tech Britannia with uh, Dr. Ranul Scarborough, who's doing the project to connect the Polynesian islands to fibre. So they've just been laying cable out to LA and back to Australia. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is it is revolutionary. I mean, every mm-hmm. one of the fun things about being in the telecoms industry is that from when I first started to now, I mean, every single year there's something new happening. And you certainly can't sit on your laurels. You, you are learning all the time. And mm-hmm. almost what you knew five years ago is now obsolete. So you can't stand still. Nothing stands still. But I think for me, you know, some people really get excited about the technology itself and, that you know, there's a lot to get excited about. But for me, I'm really more excited about what it does for people and hmm. for economies as well. And how, you know, when you look at the world and you think about those of us that can remember 20, 25 years ago, we think about what the world was like. And we, we tend to forget, you know, that, um, you know, there was a time at which very few people had mobile phones. and now we've got these, everybody's got these incredibly powerful little computers in their pockets. And even in developing countries, you know, mm-hmm. everyone um, is, is, is buying mobiles, even if they are lower spec mobiles, cheaper mobiles, and it's connecting them to the world, to the internet, and transforming their lives as a result. It connects them to education, it connects them to work, um, it connects them to things like healthcare. So it's had an incredible effect, you know, on people all around the world. And I think that's something that our industry is justifiably proud of. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, it's one of the great things about working in this industry is seeing how it transforms people's lives. Mm. And I think particularly at the moment, I think we're definitely seeing that, you know, life would have been very different for people going through the pandemic. I mean, sure. I mean, how how would we have managed this if we didn't have the cloud and if we didn't have mobile phones and we didn't have broadband? I mean, if we think about, you know, perhaps when we were all a lot younger and these things weren't there, um, we we can't imagine how we'd have managed. In fact, for most people, although there may have been some initial challenges, we did manage to keep going. And, uh, you know, you, 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 you really do thank goodness for those cloud apps and the fact that, you know, although the connectivity might not be as fantastic as we would dream of, um, it, it did keep us connected and it did keep going. So, you know, yeah, we have been quite lucky in a lot of ways, I suppose. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, I think, you know, the likes of Zoom and other video conferencing applications have been great for keeping people connected who would normally spend time face to face. And perhaps those that you don't spend time face to face with, but you actually did want to see how they were getting on. Um, yeah, and working as well. I mean, it has revolutionised the, uh, the the business diary somewhat, where you can. Yeah. and I think there's meetings. I much. mean, as you'd appreciate, part of our job um, as analysts is that we're always looking to the future, and we're looking at you know what's coming and trying to help uh, telecom service providers and businesses to understand what this means for them and what they should do about it. Um, so we're, we're there to try to to help them to navigate change effectively. And undoubtedly, the pandemic has um, has really changed the working world and the way people are living as well. And if you think about just the UK alone, um, you know, you see millions of people all of a sudden en masse working at home and a lot of them very reluctant to go back to work in a centralised fashion. And a lot of businesses also saying now, that this distributed mode of working um, is something that they're going to support long term uh, because it's what their employees actually want. And, you know, I think although homeworking has, isn't a new thing, it's been going on for, you know, 20 years plus, um, what we have seen is that a lot of the myths around homeworking, you know, that people will just be, you know, sitting there playing with the children, watching TV and not actually working, have proven not to be true. Um, people have actually been very productive. They've adapted to working at home. And it means they can avoid that, you know, thankless commute into the office every single day. And yes, there are challenges with ad- adopting um, a home working mode of working, um, but most of them can be overcome. And, um, you know, we're all sort of learning our way. Those of us that worked at home for a long period of time, I've worked at home for about 16 years, you know, and we're old hands at this. We know that there is a transition process, but there are solutions to, you know, a lot of the problems that have come up. And this has led, you know, this whole um, sort of thought process led to us at Omnisperience um, rolling out a new concept, which is the smart life space. And um, what we're saying is that, you know, a lot of companies are traditionally sold into households and that households are now not just, you know, a place where you sleep and, you know, you might talk to your granny on the phone or something. They are a place where people are living, working and playing and the market has really, really changed. So those houses have now got lots of IoT devices sort of, you know, cropping up in them. Um, they've, they're also where we're working. We're not just working from home as in working from a larger business. We might be running lots of little businesses from home. A lot of people have got side gigs these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of other services that we might, might now need within the home that certainly wasn't the case 20 years ago. So it's creating this enormous opportunity for innovation mm-hmm. and you know, for companies to come in and address this, this new way of, of living and working uh, that we've all entered into and that the pandemic has sort of accelerated. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So from your perspective, you've talked a lot about the future, about innovation, um, and obviously that's what we're all about, isn't it, at the Tetra Blazers, looking at what's coming down down the pipe from a mobile perspective. Um, what do you look for when you're judging entries? 
Um, well, it's, it's hard to give you a recipe, but I have got you some, I've got some hints and hints because I, I tend to sort of think quite laterally. So sometimes, you know, you'll see the perfect piece of technology at the perfect time, you know, and, I, and in my day job, this is the case as well. Uh, sometimes you see the perfect piece of technology that's ahead of its time. And that can be quite frustrating because you know that this is something very, very innovative, but that the market might not be quite ready for it. And sometimes you see a really interesting piece of technology where the people that have built it just don't really understand um, what the market is for that piece of technology. They, um, you know, they built it because they're technologists and they, they love technology and haven't really thought about the commercial aspects, what it's suitable for, or, or they may even think they know what it's suitable for, but actually there's a bigger opportunity to decide that they've completely ignored. So a lot of my day job is in, about helping people to to understand what they've got, what the potential is, and what, yeah. what they want to, to do with it. Um, but when it comes to to something like an awards, I think yeah. my first point would be to say that you know when you're writing a sub- submission, you have to think of the judges. So we've got lots and lots of entries to read, and you obviously want your entry to stand out so that you can you can sell it to us. So the first thing is get to the point. You know, we see a lot of entries and they, you know, they might be quite long-winded or wind about and they, they don't actually get to the point and say what's really special about, about what they have. And that can take quite a bit of work. You know, all of us can write a couple of pages on, on what we've got or on our pet topic, but to actually then go in and, and distill that into a paragraph is quite a hard thing to do, but it's a really important exercise. And when you've done it, what you should do is then go and find some random person in your office or someone that's got nothing to do with what you're doing and get them to read it and tell you whether they understand it or not. Because sometimes we get so into what we're doing, we're not seeing it as and explaining it in a way that outsiders can, can really understand. So I think there's an exercise that people need to go through in terms of, you know, ex- explaining succinctly what they do, which will help those long-suffering judges who've got lots and lots of things that they need to read always get it proofread always go through and make sure that you know the English is right uh, because we're not going to be impressed if this thing is is written in really bad English and you know hasn't got any full stops and commas in the right places and stuff like this and you might think that's a really basic thing to say Rose but you know we do see quite a lot of submissions Mm -hmm. that are just very badly written I'm a great advocate for the highlighter pen method, maybe because I'm old. I would really recommend that you print out your entry, get a highlighter pen and go over it and say, what are the really important points here that I want to stand out? And then look at it again and say, and are they standing out? Have I made the most of these points? Mm. Um, you know, Have I written it in a way that, that, that these points are, you know, are really pinging off the page? Do I need to do another rewrite? Um, I think that um, if you make an assertion, if you start to talk about your market, for example, back those up with data. I mean, we live in the data age, but there is nothing worse than reading an entry that is just reading like marketing speak with lots of spin in it and no facts. Because believe me, we get entries where, you know, they've really done their research, that every point is backed up. And those are always going to sort of stand out and, you know, be taken more seriously. The one is just that's just full of fancy words and marketing speak. As much as your marketing department might, you know, might think they've done a good job. 
Um, we're not here to judge your marketing. We're here to judge, you know, your products and your proposition. Um, I think as well, enthusiasm and passion always really stand out. So when somebody, you know, really understands why, if you've got a founder who really understands why they're doing this, um, you know, that, that really does stand out more than if you've given it to some marketer and they've, they've written it, but perhaps they didn't really grasp what it was all about or they didn't have the passion of the founder. So I think having that focus that you get from a founder is actually quite important as well, um, you know, in a, in a submission. Um, and beyond that, what I'm looking for is something that's just practical. I mean, you you often get things that are great technology that you have to really think about, well, who would buy this and why? There's a big common sense thing to this. You know, if you haven't explained in words of one syllable to me, you know, why someone would want to buy this, and I'm going to have to try and figure that out, and I'm going to use my common common sense to do that. And so I want to see a piece of technology, um, you know, that I can see, yeah, there's a really big need for that in the market. I get it. And if you're not, if your product is something that's a bit more complex and perhaps, you know, a bit more technical and harder to get, and you really have to work hard to explain to me, you know, who's going to buy it and why um, for it to stand out. So um, obviously this year we're closing relatively soon. So I think 25th of September. Um, are you looking for anything in particular? I mean, do you think things like the, the pandemic are going to be rising to the top as drivers for a lot of the new technology? Or do you think there are other factors in play? Um, I think if the awards that come in are just application, application about social distancing, I think that would be quite boring. I think there are some things that, you know, that the pandemic will have accelerated that could be very interesting. So, mm. you know, the whole working from home piece, as I said earlier, I think there's some very interesting applications around that. And I'd be, I would really like to see them. I think they're very saleable because I don't think people are going to go back to five days a week working in a centralised office. I think there's a massive market just opened up there and people that get into that market, you know, soon um i think there's you know there's a big opportunity for them and um i think what the pandemic has also done is it's put new wings on some technologies that were looked like they were promising for a very long time but really didn't take off so you know um we're actually recording this podcast over zoom and video conferencing would be a great example of that where we were all really enthusiastic about it, thought it was a good idea, and it's been very slow to sort of take off over a long period of time. But, you know, people have really been educated during the pandemic about the value of video conferencing. And, you know, and now that's a market that's, that's booming again. Um, I think that a lot of things to do with, you know, the smart home will be interesting to see as well. Um, if those are applications, you know, we're going to see some interesting use cases from those. One of the most frustrating things, I don't know about you, Rose, that I find about smart home, though, is that um, we, get very, we get very excited about, you know, having an internet-connected kettle or an internet-connected light. But these things break a lot. Um, and I'd be really interested to see something that helps me manage them better. Um, and, you know, to assure that those those objects are actually working in the way that I would want them to. So I'm quite interested in seeing that, I think, as well. 
that might be a little bit more on the Glomo side of things. I'm, I'm struggling to see how we would we would get that into an enterprise tech environment. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think there'll be an awful lot of that type of stuff happening. Um, it is interesting the way that we have we can't say her name because she'll start asking us questions. But um, yeah, I, it is funny when you're on a Zoom call and everybody starts telling their a lady to do something and then five voices pop up going I'm sorry I didn't understand that um so yeah so very and, she, and, and our digital assistant is everywhere now it's in every room and I think you know from the security side of the of the awards you know it's it's brought up some really interesting scenarios mm-hmm. as well and yeah. in those kind of applications are really interesting at the moment which is how we how we assure and how we secure um, our smart home. And one of the challenges that it's brought is that with everybody working at home, you know, we might have secured our offices very, very well, Ooh. but all of a sudden our perimeters have just disappeared and, you know, our workforce is at home and, and not just at home, you know, we've got this work anywhere sort of um, yeah. scenario that's come to the yeah. fore, which is, you know, working in coffee shops or, you know, train stations or, you know, wherever. When we finally get sick of work, working within four walls at home and we want to change a space and we want to go there and, you know, um, that brings up a whole load of new security nightmares that, you know, that businesses are going to have to try and tackle. So it's a lot of new challenges um, oh. as a result of the changes brought about by the pandemic. And, you know, it'd be, it'd be really interesting to see some some solutions to that, I think. Yeah, well, I know there are... The CISOs have probably enjoyed working from home, but it must be very hard when you're used to having effectively a fortress to protect. Um, well, now, you know, everybody, everything's out in the wild. So, yeah, you know. and, you know, we're on consumer broadband and we're using mm-hmm. consumer security packages and we're using consumer mobiles and we're using, you know, there's the, all the consumer IoT and those so-called smart objects that aren't really that smart from a security point of view. Mm. Um, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of vulnerabilities there and, um, you know, and changes to the way we're working. And, you know, we're talking really about the UK now, but we've got to remember that, you know, the world has basically started working from home and, uh, which brings in lots of, lots and lots of challenges. I did a teleconference with a, with a a contact from, um, Israel and they were sitting outside in the sunshine and you can hear all the birds singing. It was really quite idyllic and you know when, when people do that and and we're in the winter or it's raining here in the UK that's quite um it makes us quite jealous I suppose but it just shows that you know the workplace has really turned inside out and it's wherever your workers are now and there's also a lot more, more temporary workers and gig economy workers you know not everybody's employed and that brings in a whole load of challenges as well mm-hmm. I think and you know from a mobile point of view um you know we are we're sort of very much um, more mobile. And as I said, we've got things like, um, you know, 5G just rolling out and lots of unknowns around that. I mean, it's a great platform for innovation um, and we want to see some innovation happening, but we're really just at the cutting edge of that at the moment, particularly in the UK. So it'd be interesting to see over the next few years how, how you know, that um, enables and, and uh, provides a, a platform for innovation in the mobile space. Yeah, definitely. And it's very interesting what you're saying about the, um, you know, the, the contacts everywhere and you're getting to see people in their most times home environments, which I find fascinating. Um, it's a bit like the business version of Gogglebox. 
It is. You do certainly see a different side to people, I think, Rose, don't you? But I think there's been a humanisation gone on, which is very interesting when you contrast it with what's happening in the technology world, because what we're seeing is a lot of automation and AI coming into the market. Everything seems to be AI enabled at the moment. Absolutely. We're seeing already entries in that. Either we have a slant of that or focused on that. And I think, well, it's, well, these are brilliant things and, you know, it's great, you know, to have automation and automation, and, you know, can do some fantastic things for us. You can over-automate and you can have what I call bad automation. So sometimes, you know, people want to talk to another person, often because their query is very complex. And if they're sort of, um, you know, forced just to deal with some automated process that doesn't accommodate that, then it can be extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are limitations to artificial intelligence still that, you know, I mean, it's getting cleverer and cleverer every year, but there are certain things that it doesn't do very well. It doesn't do empathy. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't adjust to very complex scenarios because at the end of the day, somebody has to train it and set up the rules, uh, at least at the moment, as to what the AI can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we still need human beings in the process. And I think the key is to blend human the ai and automation and then you know then you really are cooking on gas um i think the humans add some kind of secret source still Uh, and i think that what businesses really need to do is get the technology to do the heavy lifting and save the humans where they add the value where they add that human face to the experience uh, rather than expecting poor processes to be compensated for or or sort of integrated by means of a human having to do it, um, you know that that you know those kind of things should all really be handled by technology and and the person just there to deal with the the things that they're best at doing. Oh yeah, I know. I did have an experience with um, a mobile provider um, who had a WhatsApp group for um, customer um, contact, which was fine. <laughs> As long as you stayed within the parameters that they wanted you to stay in, which they were geared up for, as soon as you went off piste, it just got a bit ridiculous. But that said, they did bring it back because the guy actually phoned me up. So there was there was somebody else. There was an automated element to it, and then there, it kind of then kicked into a human being. So it was kind of a hybrid, and maybe that's that, that's really what we need, isn't it? As you say get some of the stuff that can be automated very effectively for efficiency's sake and then bring in the human touch when you need it. Yeah, and I think mobilisation as well. So most people are accessing things now from their mobiles and not all applications work great on mobile. And so one of the sort of half-step challenges is to really get that mobile experience, you know, because, I mean, when we're talking as... Um, ladies of a certain age, and I'm sure your audience will comprise of a lot of people of a certain age as well that has some history in the tech industry. But we're also building for, you know, non-techies, for the elderly people who, you know, this for most of their lives, this technology didn't exist and they're having to adjust to it. Yeah. And we're building at the other end of the scale people who've never known anything but the mobile platform and yeah. can't imagine life behind it and believe it's a human right to have a mobile with connectivity. So when you think of the sheer scope of, uh, of customers that we have now, it's, it's quite mind-boggling. And, you know, um, actually democratising technology, making it available to wider and wider groups of people, making it work very easily 
I think is exciting. And I think, it, it, you know, it's, it's one of the next biggest challenges for this, for this decade. Mm. Um, so that the maximum number of people can, can, can use it and can enjoy it and can benefit from it. And the experience can still be very clunky. So anything that really, you know, you don't have to invent the most, uh, you know, sort of advanced technology for it to be impressive. Sometimes you're just making something that already exists work much, much better. And that is an innovation in itself. And we, we must remember that, you know, when we look back at the last 10 years, we think about um, the likes of Apple, who mm-hmm. didn't really invent a lot of technology. But what they did was they made technology work better for ordinary people. I mean, when they came into the market, you know, you were still getting a smartphone arriving. Well, there weren't even smartphones, there were feature phones at that point. You were yeah. still getting a phone arriving without it being charged. And rather than that having that lovely unboxing experience and being able to use your lovely new toy, you had to go and plug it in for a few hours before you could actually use it. And just really, I've never been twenty-four hours. It was for, it was like it was a whole day. And you know, you know, Steve Jobs realizing that that was not a satisfactory experience, and just sending out the phones with charged batteries so that people could use them straight away. But thinking about how people use mobile. And actually, just making it work in a way that was was easier and more fun, and um, you know, just 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 worked more logically. That you didn't need to have some sort of PhD in IT in order to be able to to use these devices. You know, it was a revelation. And you know, the last ten years has really been you know uh, sort of fueled by that. But we're we're not there yet. There's still a lot of things that need to happen to create a more enjoyable mobile experience and so applications that deliver that I think you know are are very interesting. Yeah absolutely. So obviously we've talked about the technology element of it and and you said yourself that you've you know you've been inside a startup in the dot-com sort of bubble time and obviously you've spoken to lots and lots and lots of startups in all of their various phases both from a sort of probably conceptual through to you know pre-ipo and post-ipo and you know pre-exit to a sale to a large vendor yeah what would you say are your tips to them at the moment because i think we're seeing an awful lot of um you know over and above the challenges that you face in a startup environment anyway things are incredibly tough at the moment for many people as you say remote workers dispersed teams um you know the economic climate and you know as we all sort of head into recession as it appears um what would you say are some key points that you've picked up along the way that may be helpful um so if you're a startup and you're 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 looking to grow at the moment i think that i think there's a there's a good market out there for you and i think what we've seen a lot of in recent years is is what i would call the outsourcing of innovation so a lot of large uh, companies don't do as much internal innovation as they used to do. They don't have the time. You know, innovation is quite a risky thing to do. Um, so they prefer to go out and consume startups um, because then they know what they're buying. So, you know, I think it's kind of interesting in a way if you sort of think about this sideways and you sometimes get a founder who um, they they see they are product and their company as their baby and they have a very personal relationship with it and so I would counsel you to to have have a passion for it not to start to see it 
as as your child, as your offspring, because at the end of the day, this is all about business. And, you know, you wanting to take investment on board. So you need to share ownership of, um, of, of that product. Eventually, you're going to want to sell it. Mm. And some founders find it very hard to let go uh, because they've invested so much of themselves into it. They, they find it hard to um, take advice. Um, they find it hard to admit that they might not be the best person to grow the business to the next stage. So I think right from the start, you need to have a very practical view that this is a good idea that you have had and that you are building, but your objective is to sell this successfully and make a lot of money so that you can then live the life that you want to live. And that might include another startup. You might take the money that you have, and we see this quite often where you know, you have serial entrepreneurship where someone will have a successful first exit and then will either become an investor in other startups or they will go on and, you know, and found another startup. Often it's the, the second or third startup where, you know, they've learned along the way and they have a much, much bigger exit, you know, the second or third time around. Mm. But I think be practical um, realize that this is an idea that you are guiding through these different stages, that you need external advice sometimes. You need to be outside the echo chamber. So everybody internally might be telling you this idea is great and everything's fantastic. And sometimes you need someone to come from outside and tell you what's wrong. And I, and I would say that um, I, I would call myself a constructive cynic, um, Rose, because I have to tell a lot of people that their that their babies are ugly, um, so they, they they all love their babies. They all love their products. They all think that their that their product is beautiful. And I have to come in and to pick spots and tell them what's wrong with it and and how they how they need to change it. But I try to do that in a constructive way because I'm mindful of the fact that at the end of the day, what these these people are putting their their blood, sweat, and tears into this startup. And what they deserve to get is a successful exit, um, which leaves them financially sound. So to do that, you know, we have to really look at this in the cold light of day and say, you know, is this something that people will buy? And if not, why not? And how do we improve it? And how do we make it more saleable? So I guess that's my biggest piece of advice is be realistic. Have a little bit of emotional separation, as hard as that can be sometimes, because I do want you to be passionate about your product. But, you know, you do have to have a little bit of it's a bit like that teenage stage, I suppose, where you're you're sort of separating slightly from your baby, aren't you? And, and letting it stand on its own two feet. And you have to do that with a with a product as well. Yeah, no. Well, I know how that one's going because I've got a teenager and you've got yours of similar age. So I think <laughs> we're living that one right now. Yeah, and it can be it can be very difficult, and, and 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 I think people underestimate the emotional impact of building a company mm. because you do put your life and soul into it, and you know mm. you, you have to have a passion for what you're doing to actually put yourself through this amount of pain. And you know, as judges, I'm very uh, I'm very aware of that. Um, but on the other hand, there is no point in going down a rabbit hole. Um, you do need to be creating something that you can extract a value out of that somebody else is prepared to invest in or to buy from you. So it is really important to sometimes get stop and get that external perspective. Are we doing this right? Is there something we're missing? 
Um, what, what would ordinary people think of this? Where would our market be? You know, someone that will ask the right questions and mm-hmm. give you a different, honest perspective. And by the way, that isn't an easy thing to do either. It's very hard to go into a room full of people, all of whom absolutely passionately love what they're doing, and then to say, excuse me, I have a problem with what you're doing because, and this is why, and this is what I think you should do about it. So, um, you know, I think, you know, please respect us as well when we, when we pick spots. You, you, can, you should really challenge us and say, you've told us what's wrong with our product, but, you know, do you have an answer as to, as to how we could improve it? You know, that is a comeback that you, you, you could have on us and have an expectation to do that. But I think you do, you do have to see the value as well. When you, when you enter an award scheme like this, one of the really valuable things you're getting back from it, hopefully, is some feedback and some validation and some hints and tips for, for improvement, uh, which should be very valuable to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to round up, um, I think this is something that we've talked about, uh, you and I, in the past, um, and obviously has become more and more of a topic in the business world that we both operate in, is around the diversity in the world of IT Mm -hmm. uh, and in technology. What do you see that would be able to help facilitate that? I think in the tech world, we don't really have a problem in terms of ethnic diversity, at least in mobile, because the whole world is involved in this. I mean, the amount of innovation I'm seeing coming out of markets like Africa is just unbelievable. And, you know, Asia is so far ahead, you know, pushing technology, um, extremely IT literate people there. So I really work in a globalized market. So we don't have a problem with ethnic diversity. The industry by nature is ethnically diverse. Everybody is engaged in it. And the barriers to entry are actually have decreased, you know, very modest nowadays. So young people can pick up um, the tools and start to build something pretty easily. I think where we do have a problem is getting more women involved in the industry. And technology, even today, tends to be something that is seen as a male preserve. Mm -hmm. And I am somewhat disappointed by the numbers of women that we see in the industry today. It varies according to the market. So you can go to some markets where there are relatively more women, but it's certainly not 50-50. And there are a number of reasons, I think, why women are not entering the industry in the volume that we would like to see. And I don't think it's because uh, the tech industry is making it difficult. I think they have got arms open waiting to embrace women into the industry if they they choose to join it. Um, There's a shortage of many skill sets and they would be happy to take anybody or anything (laughs) to fill some of these jobs. (laughs) you know, because they're, they're absolutely, that level of diversity. <laughs> yeah, they're absolutely desperate to get people into some of these into some of these jobs and go out and market, you know, to, to young people to come into the industry. And we do a lot of work in terms of mid 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 uh, career as well, trying to get people to who've maybe hit a, a sort of wall with their career in a board and, mm-hmm. and to give them the skills to come into the industry as well. So we're actually quite good at doing that. But I think it starts before they hit our industry 
in schools that people get into a mindset, women get into a mindset that the technology industry is not for them. And I certainly go out and a lot of other um, women do, a lot of companies do into schools. And I do try to break down this perception and, and explain that, you know, whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever your interests are, there is a role for you in technology. Um, whether you just want to become a multi-billionaire, well, your chance of doing that in our industry is probably better than in most. Um, whether you want to travel the world and you just love, you know, working with people from all over the world, it's a great industry for that. Uh, whether you want to do good, because our industry does an awful lot of good, um, both because we give money altruistically, but also because the tools that we're building are actually really helping, you know, to, to do a lot of good in the world, whether that's helping people to, um, you know, sort of work their own way out of poverty and to give people the tools so they can do that, or whether it's, you know, helping the environment even. Um, you know, we've got a good track record on, you know, we're moving to renewables on mass. Um, we substitute for all that commuting, so we're helping there. You know, there's lots of things that we do that help the environment as well in this industry. So I go through lots of different motivations and explain that, you know, you don't have to be a coder to work in technology. I mean, there's so many other jobs in this industry. And it's trying to get those young people at a certain age and open their eyes and get them to understand that, you know, if you're neurodiverse, you know, if you're, uh, for example, uh, on the autistic spectrum, that, you know, we embrace you. There's lots and lots of um, uh, roles that people like that are brilliant at, you know, working within our industry that require people to concentrate on detail. Um, and to be fanatical about detail, and you know, you know, we 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 have a lot of people that are neurodiverse within our industry. So I think um, it's really about perception. Um, I think we do sometimes encounter sexism within the industry, but I must say, in my career, that's been you know very rare. I think most of the men that work in the industry that I've encountered, you know, would like to see a lot more women, um, and I think women bring a perspective that our industry vitally needs. I've seen so many uh, male-led startups that um, have come up with technology that is just not viable. I could I'll give you an example. Um, there was a, I wrote about this uh, a couple of years ago. There was a hilarious example, Rose, of an internet-connected bra that somebody had come up with, a man had come up with, and his idea... He did one not. <laughs> well, I pointed out to him that as a woman, I really couldn't see a market for it. And he looked very mystified. And the reason is because, you know, obviously it's, it'd have to be certified as a medical device because it's so close to, to your body, um, you know, and you'd have to really make sure it was safe. Um, also, um, the idea behind it, which was, you know, he was trying to do good, which was women can sometimes get into very difficult situations, you know, and in some countries, you know, uh, be a uh, high risk of being sexually assaulted. And he thought... Oh, right, there was a personal safety device rather than just a... Yes, but I pointed out to him that by, you know, that, that, that you could be sexually assaulted with them out there actually touching the bra and that, um, you know, I, I was slightly worried that you might be sending messages to the police while you were legitimately um, engaging in some something frisky and that would be quite embarrassing. So there were a whole load of reasons why this thing wouldn't work, not, not least because he hadn't thought about whether it was watchable or not. Um, and, you know, so I think women can bring a sort of perspective 
Uh, another example would be the internet connected hairbrush, which was going to cost about $150. And I just didn't believe that there were very many women that would want to go and pay $150 just to be told whether they were brushing their hair right or not. So, you know, we can bring in some sort of uh, practical, um, cynical eye, um, which can stop you going down that rabbit hole and, and developing something that really there isn't a market for. And, you know, to to help guide you in a direction where there, there is there is a something that, you know, there is some money and uh, you can use your talents to to better effect, I think. Well, yes, I don't. I don't think those two were really viable. But um, we call it they have brightened things up in my world, anyway. We have a we have a yeah we have a collection called the Internet of Silly Things, and um, I think because there aren't enough women in the IoT world, I think we do see this. um, You know, these these silly things. Just because you can connect it to the internet doesn't mean to say that you should. Um, you know, and sometimes you need someone to tell you that at an early stage before you've invested too much money, time and effort um, mm. in producing something that there isn't actually a market for. But there are so many things that it would be cool to connect to the Internet. Um, you know, so um, put your talents to good use to something that, you know, will really enhance people's lives. And, that, and more importantly, that people are prepared to pay for because we're not in a charity business here. Um, if the if there isn't a, a group of people that will pay hard cash for your products, um, then you don't really have something that's commercially viable, do you? So somebody has to be prepared to part with the hard-earned cash uh, for your concept for it to, to be commercially viable. Yeah, and even more so in the commercial world now where people are finding that budgets are going to be, well, even more scrutinised than they were previously. Those substitution applications would be interesting in this current market. So if you've got something that will help somebody save a little, they spend a bit of money on whatever it is that you're doing to save a little bit of money somewhere else, then I think that that, that would have legs on at the moment because people, I think, from the autumn, from now onwards, you know, as the furlough schemes disappear and, um, you know, the short time working um, at Caesars and people start to run out of credit. I think, you know, you are going to find um, large sectors of the, of, of, the, of the community which are, you know, cash constrained. Um, and therefore, anything that's actually going to help, um, you know, save a bit of money for those people, I think would be, would be of interest. Environmental things, you know, as I said last year, we were talking about the environment quite a lot. It hasn't really gone away. It's, got, it's a little bit quieter profile after after COVID, but you know we're still looking at you know how we can do things that you know have a positive environmental impact. I think, and a lot of big companies have got we must remember have got environmental goals built into um, you know their business models now. So things like applications that can help save power, or you know can you know we've talked about the fact that you know a lot of homeworking technology substitutes for Know, commuting or those big centralised offices, which are very power hungry places. Um, all those kind of things are, you know, are very interesting. I think the other thing that we know is true is that we have an ageing population in a lot of countries. So applications that, you know, support healthcare, uh, support people being able to live longer in this in their own homes safely. Um, all those kind of things are, you know, very very interesting applications at the moment with with our ageing population. And we touched on earlier that there are some um, parts of the employment market where 
there are really big shortages in terms of, of skill set. So um, anything that helps us able to, you know, find these in-demand skills or automate some of that stuff, um, you know, to fill that gap, I think, you know, are interesting. There's just so much out there. I mean, I've got quite an eclectic taste when it comes to technology, Rose. So I'm hoping to see something that makes me sit up and say, well, I didn't think, I, I didn't think about, but actually it's really obvious. You know, when you find an application where you think that's really obvious, why didn't somebody think of that before? You, you're on to a winner because, you know, um, it's already got a market. It's just that nobody had noticed the gap. Um, so I'm hoping to see one of those this time around. Fabulous. And is there anything else that you'd like to share, perhaps, about you? Or well, obviously, we know about the knitting now. So the, the, the <laughs> knitting. Um that you think would be good to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think one of the things, again, that I have that I'm a woman, so I have a different perspective on, on technology than perhaps the, you know, the majority of male analysts do. I also live in the countryside. I live out of a main city and I find that um, a lot of analysts, a lot of technologists tend to live in tech hubs or they live in big cities. I think when you come out into the countryside and you see um, ordinary people, everyday people, and their experience of technology, that gives you another perspective on the technology world. And I think if you live in California, for example, you know, in Silicon Valley, or even you know, the Silicon Roundabout in London and, and, and all these other tech hubs, um, you're surrounded by other technology enthusiasts, people that are very educated uh, about technology. Um, and that I have access to fantastic bandwidth, um, then I think you have a very different perspective than when you live outside in the countryside in a place where, you know, your bandwidth constrained and the majority of people aren't very technology literate. And that's our mass market. Those are the people that who we have to convince to use our technology. So I think sometimes it's really good to get outside our own bubble and to sort of look at it from the perspective of other people, whether that's older people, younger people, people of a different sex or a different culture, uh, and get as many perspectives on, on what you're doing as possible. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Teresa. It's always a pleasure to catch up. And yeah, some great insights there, some great things that I'd not heard of before. Um, the this is um, what it's all about. And we love having you involved because you bring a, your own enthusiasm and passion for the world of startups in the mobile world and in IoT. So thank you again for joining us on the Judges on Fire podcast from the Tech Trailblazers. Thank you very much for having me, Rose. Yeah, fantastic. And for our listeners, you um, can review what we've been talking about. We'd love your feedback. You can listen, obviously, to other podcasts, both on the Founders on Fire, where we speak to the winners, and also to other judges. And also follow us on social at Tech Trailblaze on Twitter. And you can find us as Tech Trailblazers on LinkedIn. Thank you very much.